0: You've got this, gonna rock this Ain't nobody gonna stop you from living the life that you choose You're confident, you're fearless Don't question your spirit You're the only one who's gotta walk in your shoes You've got the tools, you're not alone You've always been your baby's home, bring them into the world in your own,
1: bring them into the world in your own.
0: Hey there, welcome back to episode number seven of the No Fear Home Birth Podcast. Today, home birth, free birth mindset coach and mom of three, Ashley L. Winning, will share her first two birth stories, the ones that prompted her to plan an unassisted free birth with her third child. I'm your host, Megan R. Cooper, and before we get into Ashley's birth story, I'm going to answer a listener question about the internal struggle between staying active and resting when you're full term. Now, without any further ado, let's get into this week's question. It's from Jackie, who writes, Hi, Megan, I'm almost 40 weeks and struggle between wanting to stay as active as possible, walking, cleaning the house, cooking, bouncing on the ball, etc. to get baby to move down and wondering if I need to rest because rest is what will put me into labor. Basically, I have tons of energy, so I don't mind doing all the things. But should I be? Will it cause me not to go into labor? Should I be practicing relaxation and binging a Netflix show? I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels this internal pull. So thanks for that question, Jackie. And before I answer, I'll just give my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only, aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice, and don't constitute a provider, patient, or coach-client relationship. Also, this is just my take as one home birth professional, and I hope you'll seek out other perspectives and consult your own intuition as well. We're just going to dive right into this. Jackie, thank you for this question. I, I, I think you're exactly right that you're not the only one to feel this internal push-pull, this questioning, wondering, like, what should I be doing? Should I be really active? Should I be really, like, should I just relax? Like, what should I do? That's not uncommon at all. And the short answer is you should do whatever feels right to you and your body and your mind. That's the short answer. If you feel like I've got all this energy and I, I want to bounce on the ball and take walks and stay active and do all these things and you that, that feels good to you, yeah, do it. Do it, Right. If you feel like, which it sounds like, by the way, that that is you, that you're feeling like you want the active, want to stay active, you want to do all that, but you're questioning like, is that right? If the, if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm full term or close to full term and I don't feel like doing a damn thing, that is also okay and perfectly natural, normal and wonderful. <laughs> no kidding. With my first pregnancy, I definitely felt like Jackie where I was like I want to be as active as possible. Like I literally walked 4 miles every day and that felt really good to me, like even at full term. Um as I've mentioned before if you've listened to my um first birth story which was episode 1, I walked that when I was in labor for over 15,000 miles that I was in really good shape. I just liked it. I loved feeling active. I loved being active. That's what I did. Okay. By the way, I don't recommend walking 15,000 steps. I think I just said miles, but I meant steps (laughs) during labor. Um, because unless I guess unless you're really, really, really great shape and I don't even know, like, you know, you have a history of precipitous labors that go fast or something. I'm not really sure. I just feel like it really wore me out to do that in the end, because my labor took so long over 24 hours, et cetera, et cetera. So that being said, I was so active and like felt the energy with my first pregnancy. With my second, I had a toddler at home. The pregnancy was harder. I had a lot going on mentally and emotionally. Um, I was working a high stress nursing job. And near the end of my pregnancy, I had a patient that I was taking care of who ended up dying. Um, And this was someone who I admitted this person walked in to the hospital, walked to his, his room, I got him admitted. And within four hours, he was dead. And that (laughs) was really, really hard on me um, emotionally and mentally. It was so fatiguing. And then there's, of course, like the physical uh, demands of a nursing job. But I felt like I just needed to rest and I just wanted to rest. And so that's what I did. And both of those things were exactly what was right for me at those times. When I wanted to be active, if I wasn't, if I was not honoring that and I was just like, okay, I'm just going to rest. Like I would have been crawling out of my skin. (laughs) Like I would have been like, I would have hated it. Right. And vice versa. When I felt like I didn't want to do a damn thing, I would have not been happy if someone was like, okay, you need to do all the things you need to go walk and you need to, you know, bounce on a ball and flip upside down and do cartwheels or whatever. Um, that wouldn't have worked for me. So you've got to really listen to your body and your mind and what it's telling you and do that. Truly. Now I will say that when you mentioned quote unquote doing all the things, I presume you are talking about all the various methods that can induce labor, basically. Um like curb walking, and um, well, gosh, I can't think of one other one right now. I don't know eating spicy foods, um, having sex. Like, there's a whole bunch of them. But the thing is, and I, I've probably spoke to this before because this is something that comes up a lot. If you want to do those things again, do them by all means. Those things are not going to actually put you into labor. Your body is going to go into labor when your body and your baby are ready. <laughs> so you don't have control over that. As much as you want to have control over it, you just don't. <laughs> and so, again, if you want to do those things, if you want to use a breast pump for a nipple stimulation to see if you can get things going, um, if you want to go run around the block, like whatever you want to do, you can do it. Just don't expect it to. I think that sometimes it can, you can get into this mental headspace of like, if I do these things, it's going to bring on labor. And, but the thing is like, when it doesn't, it's very defease, defeating, defeating and draining and like oh my gosh is this baby ever going to come especially if you start doing those things like re- as soon as you're quote unquote full term if you get to 37 weeks and you're like okay I'm going to bring this baby on you might be someone who naturally carries the baby to 40 weeks 41 42 weeks you might be doing these things for 5 weeks or more right and like For you to put in all that effort, there's just no way that it's not going to have an impact on your mental health. And so I think that's very important to keep in mind as well, is when you're doing these things to stay active, do what you want to do because you want to be active. You have to be very careful that you're not doing them to try to get a specific result, like getting labor to start. To submit your own question for a chance to have it answered, either here or in my No Fear Home Birth weekly email series, just follow the link in the show notes. Now, without any further ado, let's get into episode number seven. Hey, Ashley, thanks so much for being here on the No Fear Home
1: Birth podcast today. I'm so excited to chat with you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's um, an honor to be here and I'm really excited to have a chat with you today.
0: Oh, I am so excited to chat with you as well, um, and we're just going to get right into it. I would love, before we get into your birth story, for you to just tell us a little bit about um, your fa- who you are and you and your family.
1: Sure. So you might hear my little doggy running around. I've got a little fair baby named Layla, who's a Pomeranian. I am a mom of three. I live in Australia near the Gold Coast, and... I am really playful. I love a good laugh. I love to relax. I um, also work in the space of supporting VBAC and home birth mamas as a birth coach. And I love the sun and getting to the beach.
0: Oh my gosh. I wish I lived near the beach. That sounds so amazing.
1: Yes, uh, it is. And I mean, I'm about half an hour away from the beach. So you get stuck in traffic and all that on the weekends now. So it's a bit of a pain, but it's just nice to know that it's, you know, just down the road. I mean, it's half an hour, but you know, you can get there. You don't have to travel two hours to get to the beach. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, great, Ashley. Oh my gosh. Okay. So your third birth was when you had your home birth, but before we get into that story, which we're going to feature on next week's episode, can you tell us
1: and go through your first two birth stories? Sure. So I'm a high BMI mum and I went to, basically, I'm going to give you a really short version because I could talk for days on my births and all the intricate details of everything. I always love to include all the details, but essentially I wanted to be the best mum I could be. I wanted to make sure everything was perfect. I went to doctors before, had tests before we decided conceiving and I really wanted to get my ducks lined up in a row to make sure I was doing everything in the right way. So the only thing that they mentioned was being a high BMI mum, the recommendation was to lose some weight because I could have some problems with conception. There wasn't any other information about how my high BMI could cause issues for me in the system or um, any of those sorts of things going on. So I just decided to conceive and we fell pregnant straight away and I was in for a rough six months. I had HD, very, very sick. Um, and so I just rode the waves and I got diagnosed with GD around 16 weeks because as a high BMI, they like to do the GTT test, uh, earlier and, um, that was a bit of a shock because I, in one part of where we lived, I was told by the doctor I didn't have it. Um, so in Brisbane, where I worked, and then when I came into my state, uh, not my state, my um, local council area, they said, "In this hospital, you have GDD. Uh, you have GD." So that was a bit of a shock for me, and um, it was so interesting because you know if I was in a different. Like 10 minutes up the road, I would have not had GD. And if I was here, I wouldn't have. So there was a lot of shame and guilt around that because I did blame having a high BMI. Um, and there was a lot of extra appointments and things as well. And it was just really shamey. And it, it just made everything more high risk. You have to have this appointment with a dietitian. You go have to go see a GD person. You have to go to this meeting. You're now with obstetricians. And, and so I kind of put it in perspective of thinking, I had the best care because here in Australia we have Medicare. So I went publicly funded, which meant normally you would go see midwives at the hospital and um, when you get put into high risk, you see obstetricians, but you will see like junior obstetricians who are training. And so I was with them and I thought, well, you know, obstetricians are the bosses, like I'm going to get the best care possible. But it felt really cold and clinical and I never had the answers that I like any of the questions that I wanted answered like what's going to happen in birth do I need to prepare for birth like can we talk about birth like I always asked about birth and they always like oh let we'll talk about that next time it was always next time and next time and next time and um I did ask one of the doctors right at the end you know I said like is my baby engaged and he kind of like laughed at me and um I was like really taken back by his casualness uh to you know this situation i felt i just didn't feel like he was in it and i thought i said to him like why are you here doing this job like do you want to be an obstetrician like cuz you seem like you know this is a bit of a joke to you and he was just there you know it it didn't feel the way that it's supposed to feel like in the movies where everyone surrounds you and it's an exciting time and you get all the information and all that sort of thing. We did go to the hospital um, antenatal um, group class and that was a little bit helpful but it was mostly like these are the drugs that you can have and, you know, here are some birthing positions and it was mostly centred around hospital policy and, you know, priming you for what was going to be happening when you went into labour. I knew from a very early stage that I was going to be induced and I really loved that because I was going to have my baby two weeks earlier. And um, I just thought the baby would come out and everything would be okay. And the women that I'd spoke to in the GD team, like the other mums, they had already been through this before some of them. And it was like I was induced and my baby was born four hours later and I was like, Oh wow, cool. You know? So I was expecting that sort of situation to happen and eventually, um, you know, we went through the induction process, which was a very long-winded, painful process and it failed and so I didn't, like, dilate at all. They couldn't get in at all. My cervix was super closed. I think of it now as my body is like a champion and they couldn't break me (laughs) Um, but I didn't look at it like that at the time. I looked at it as I was a failure. I failed. What happened to me? Why did nobody warn me? This could be a possibility. That was hell. It was really hard. How could I ever do this again? You know? And so they said to me, now we're going to send you home and you're going to come back tomorrow and we're going to monitor you for four hours, which was you know a really annoying process because it usually took four to six hours. You had to lay in one position, which was on your back, which is really uncomfortable when you're hugely pregnant. Um, and then you're going to come back the next day and we're going to induce you again. And I was like, no way. It was the most excruciating, painful experience and really uncomfortable. And my husband had to go back to work in a few days and my in-laws were at my house looking after my dog. And I, it was just, and I said, they said oh, either that or come back for a cesarean on Monday. And I said, no, there's no way I would come in for a cesarean. Like, there's no way I would do that. I want to have a vaginal birth. And I said, Well, can I just come back when I'm in labor? And they said, No, you can't. And I was like, Why? Like, you know, why can't I just come back in two weeks when I'm in labor? And they went away and had a chat in this meeting that they were having for the morning. And they came back and they said, Our recommendation for you is we've bumped all the surgeries and you can have your, you have a cesarean and we'll do you first. And I thought, well, they've just bumped everyone for me. Like it must be the best option for me. And I agreed to have that cesarean and they gave me a form with like three pages and all the risks and I was so scared and my sister was there and she was pro-cesarean. She is an RN and she was working in surgery and she'd been on at me my whole pregnancy about cesarean. I was like, I don't want a cesarean. Like, there's no way I'm doing it. I told the doctors I don't want to do it. And I was really, really scared and I went through that process and the the nurse in there told me I look like a deer in headlights. And I was like, well, you know, there's lights everywhere. No wonder I look like a deer. I've never been into an experience where there's lights and surgical equipment and I was in there by myself. My husband couldn't come in until after. Anyone who's had a caesarean knows that. Um, And then I had to get jabbed with a big needle in my back Um, and we went through that process and it was really disconnected. Um, I was drugged out. I was shaking, I was cold. Um, and I just didn't connect with my baby at all. I just, from this experience of wanting my baby so badly and wanting this moment to meet her. And then when she was born, I was like, okay, can I go to sleep now? (laughs) Because I was so drugged out and tired after that process. I didn't care about what was happening in the moment because I couldn't connect. I couldn't really be conscious to what was happening. And um, then, you know, with vomiting and things like that, that were happening afterwards. And, you know, that was the that was the birth of our first baby.
0: Oh my gosh. There are so many pieces that I could talk about right now. But what I will say here real quick is that, good for you for saying to the obstetrician, you know, speaking up and just saying, it doesn't seem like you want to be here. Why is this a joke? Why does this seem like a joke to you? I mean, all the power to you because that is so wildly inappropriate to me. <laughs> the whole scenario just does not. Yeah. Doesn't not sit well.
1: Yeah. And like, he was so, he was so chill. He was like, um leaning back on his chair and flicking his pen in the air. It was, that's why I said it. Cause I was like, it feels like you're a teenager, like flipping your pen in your air. You've got your leg crossed over, you're bouncing back on your chair. It was just, he was feeling superior, arrogant. I'm cool. I'm a doctor, you know? And I just felt really disrespected. And I felt, who am I, who is this joker? <laughs> like, it, it, it was really inappropriate and really unprofessional. And if I could go back and I had the confidence and the experience I had now, I would be wanting to speak to his superior and having a real conversation about this and, you know, putting him into line, like, uh, you know, if I, you know, but yeah, I did, I did say something because whether it even got through his little thick skull, because of the arrogance. I'm not sure. He ended up being part of the induction process. And I called him Dr. Nick with my husband from, you know, the Simpsons, the crazy scientist doctor, who like chops people's legs off when he's supposed to be doing arm surgery and stuff, because I didn't know what to expect with this joker. Uh, <laughs> and, that, and that's not really nice to go into that situation. No, not at all.
0: So then as you were preparing for your next birth, did you have an idea of what type of birth you would want to
1: have? I knew I was going to have a VBAC. I planned my babies at least, I planned my babies 24 months apart. So I waited until there was a 24 month gap because as far as I knew, that was the only thing that would stop me from having a VBAC.
0: Right. And so then how did that uh, pregnancy and birth go for you?
1: It was very stressful. It was high anxiety. I was part of an Australian VBAC support group and so I'd seen things in that group and how women were treated and um, I went in there with hope and with belief that if they just saw me and understood that I understand everything and that I'm educated, that I'm intelligent, that I'm willing to work with them and compromise on things, that we would have a partnership and things would go ahead just like, you know, informed consent is their motto. So I thought that's what would happen.
0: I mean, that seems perfectly reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) But given that you're saying that, I'm guessing that's not how (laughs) it went. (laughs) it
1: was not how it went. It was very different to that experience, I felt. Um, I mean, first of all, I was trying to avoid GD, so I didn't get GD, the GD test. I um, didn't have GD with the first test, um, which was great. I was like, yes, you know, I'd made a few lifestyle changes, I suppose. And I was really, really anxious about getting GD the second, you know, with the next test. And so I was trying to do as many things to try to avoid it, because in my mind, that was the thing that led me to an induction. Without that, I felt like I would be with midwives and I would just have a vaginal birth and be treated like a normal woman. Um, It was a bit of a curse having that GD diagnosis on my book, especially at that hospital. And um, unfortunately I got gestational diabetes or I was diagnosed with it um, by one on one of the tests. So there's three tests that they go through. If I'd known, I probably would have redone the test. I didn't realise that was an option um, because, you know, I've heard of so many women's stories, but it was by one, so it was barely, you know, and again, if I was at a different hospital, I probably wouldn't have even had it. Um now what I know and my experience is I don't really believe in gestational diabetes. Um, there's a lot of information and evidence out there in regards to gestational diabetes and whether it's actually a thing. Um, and I can even give you some links to podcasts if you want to share that with your viewers because I'm really passionate about women not being boxed into certain categories because once you get boxed, you're stuffed. And certain things are gonna happen. They're gonna see you in a different light. And that's basically what's gonna to happen to you. So I then couldn't be with midwives again and I had to be with obstetricians. And I had, you know, the most unusual conversations with people. So just to share some of the conversations. So I it would always be see, so you, you know, you can have a repeat cesarean. No, I'm having a V back. Oh, do you know the risks of that? Yes, I do. Here are the risks. Oh, I'm surprised you know that. Okay, you do know well, if you read my book, yes, you would know that I already knew that. It would be the same conversation all the time because I'd see different people. Then it got to the point where I refused to speak to junior obstetricians. I was only going to speak to consultants because what's the point? I'm wasting my time. They're not the bosses. So I spoke with one obstetrician and she answered a um, private phone call in the middle of our um consult because her son was at sports and had to tell her his news, um, which was lovely. And and she said, Look, VBACs are, you know, went through all the risks, you know, they're great, rah, 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 but not for you, because of your high BMI. And she's like, I'm not a fattest, but because I'm a big woman myself, but and I was like, What? You, I've never heard someone say I'm not a fattest before. Um but, you know, that's kind of like, I'm not racist, but, you know, uh, that's really, I, obviously she was a fattest, if that, whatever that is, you know, obviously had it against fat people. But um, I noticed a trend that came up a lot and it was around my weight then. So my numbers, my GD numbers that they knew of were under control. So I had um, controlled diabetes because that's what I fudged my numbers to be. Um And so now it was all about my weight and I wasn't really putting on much weight. I would have to get weighed and I'm always waiting for them to say, oh, you haven't put on much weight. You know, you're a good girl, Ashley. I was trying to do all the things, stressing myself out to get them to play with me and it was always induction. We want you to have an induction. We want you to have this. And I was always trying to seek their approval on my plans. You know, I don't want to have continuous monitoring. I want to have this and I want to have that. I want to have this. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that I wasn't going to have growth scans um, because I didn't see the point. A growth scan only means that you're going to find out my baby's four kilos and you're going to say cesarean and I'm going to say no. Um, I said to them, I'm happy with a 4.5 kilo baby. So, you know, I think it's probably going to be about four kilos. So that's no problems for me. And so it was about fighting the induction because that's what they wanted. And I found out eventually the reason for the induction was because of my high BMI, they wanted to control me going into labor so that they had senior obstetricians because the junior obstetricians wouldn't feel comfortable or confident um, operating on me in an emergency situation because of the extra fat layers they have to cut through. And so that's fine. I, I was in a um, room with a senior and a junior and I said, okay, so how about you send me to a hospital that has the capability? Cause I'm in, I'm blessed in a spot where I've got hospitals all around me and they looked at me and laughed at me. And I said, okay, well, it mustn't be a problem then <laughs> Like if they're not taking it seriously, then it mustn't be a, a problem. They kind of just fabricating. But what I didn't realize was, they actually had a different plan and it was to fear monger me to bend to their will and so every appointment was fat women can't birth it, I, I would just leave like sessions feeling like bigger women were incapable of birthing because they would talk about all the risks and all the hard you know bigger things that could happen in that um, that labor. And I ended up having to get, I had a student midwife, I had a doula and I also had the head of midwifery who came to my appointment. So interchangeably, there was always someone with me and, you know, having the head of midwifery, I thought that was going to be a good thing. Um, but she just sat there in these appointments and didn't say peep. And then when we walked out, she'd be like, no, that's not true. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, so this is all pointless. Having all these people is pointless because none of them have power. None of them have control. And, you know, I was doing all the things that I was reading in the, in the groups. You know, if you have this person, you're less likely to have an induction. You, you're less to have this, you're less to have that. And the thing is, you've got to look at these percentages. Why is that? What are they going to do for me? What is it? I found that most of those things, they did nothing. Like the only thing you have to find out the answers, like, why are they treating you like this? What is it that they're trying to manage? And I found for me, it was in, like I said to them, okay, fine. I walk in. I'll, I'll write my paper and I'll say, you know, I take full responsibility for my vaginal birth. And the doctor said to me, your, pa- your signature is not worth the paper it's written on. <laughs> So the paper's worth like zero cents, like zero, maybe one cent, and my signature isn't worth the paper it's written on. Is what he said to me.
0: Wow, I'm so sorry that you went through all of that. I mean, that just sounds horrible. It is horrible. I'm sure just shook your shook your confidence to the core, um, and it's for, like infuriating because you're like trying to fight for for what you want and know and believe you know, that you want this feedback.
1: It was, it was one of the hardest experiences in my life because at the same time I had my sister who's working in the hospital and I'm, I'm trying to get her to see things my way. I'm trying to get her support. So I was turning to the wrong people for support too. And so I've learned so many things, right. That now I teach my audience and my clients, but, um, she's saying to me, she's already pro cesarean. Like I already knew this from the last experience, Right. And I'm trying to get her to come on my team and she's going around to obstetricians like randos, like, what do you think my sister should do? Of course, they're going to say cesarean. So she's calling up my family saying, Ashley's going to kill the baby by having a V-back. She's calling up me saying, Ashley, you're going to kill the baby by having a V-back. And I'm like, so you're telling me I'm going to die. My baby's going to die in hospital with surgeons around me what the, like it was just, and so it got to the point, I mean, even one obstetrician student, she said to me, cause I was trying to advocate for, um, for Doppler, not in continuous monitoring. She said to me, my boss says that when it comes to, um, birth, if you don't have continuous monitoring, that it's like free birthing in the hospital. And I was like, at that point, free birth to me was like crazy. And I was like, it was just a real eye opener that they've got these doctors teaching these new doctors that if a woman doesn't have continuous monitoring, she's free birthing in a hospital where there's like all this monitoring equipment, there's like staff, there's an operating theater down the room. Like, like that's their mindset. And so when you can see, when you can take a step back, like at the mo- at that moment it was very personal for me because it was personal. They were saying these things to me. They weren't seeing me for who I was as a human they weren't relating to me. They weren't asking or caring about why I wanted to have this VBAC. No one ever asked me why I want to have a VBAC or how many children I wanted to have or any of those things. They didn't factor. It was all about them. You have to fit our system. You have to fit our insurances. You have to fit our um, schedules. You have to bend to our will. And when I wouldn't bend, I mean. This is why I'm very proud of myself for going through that experience. But would I want to go through it again? No. Would I want any other woman to have to go through it? No. So I really want to, you know, put this information out so women don't have to go through this and have that experience. But so many women are. But at 37, 36 weeks, I got a phone call from them and they said, and nothing had changed with my health or anything. And they said, we've decided that we can't take you on anymore. You're too big a risk and you have to find a new hospital.
0: What? Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. And that was, that was so scary. I was just, I just, I couldn't believe I didn't know you could be kicked out of hospital. And, um, I was so vulnerable. I just, I felt like I'd been abused the whole time. I felt so vulnerable. I had high anxiety. I was a nervous wreck, constantly questioning myself. And then I had to choose a new hospital. So I chose the Gold Coast Hospital, which was a new hospital at the time. And I went there and it was a bit more civilised. You know, they had signs up saying informed consent. I thought, wow, they didn't have this at the last hospital. Uh, Everyone was polite. The first midwife that I met, she was lovely and she was all, you can have everything you want and if they don't, you complain and you put in a complaint. I thought, wow, this is so different to what I'd experienced with my first two. And I thought really positive. Um, I found that the obstetricians were, I met with all women obstetricians, which was really nice for me. And some of them were, one was almost a consultant and the other one was a junior. The junior was much more heavily intervention based. And the Almost consultant was much more relaxed, and she was pregnant herself. And I felt really connected with her. I felt like she was the first person to ask me, "Why do you want to have a VBAC?" And when I said to her, "I want to have four children," she was like, "Oh, well you know, it makes sense for you to have VBAC, and you know, you know your staff." And she was really supportive and um, respectful when she listened to me, and she didn't ask me to do anything that I didn't really want to do. But I found with the junior obstetrician they have their basic protocols and their guidelines and they don't think outside the box. It's like they're, because they're trying to learn, they've got a lot of information to learn and they've got to learn things a certain way. So they're going through their checklist, but they can't think outside of that because they're just trying to learn this process. And so the first thing this, this woman said was, you know, we have to do a scan. We have to make sure see what baby size is and we have to do this and we have to do that. And I was like, I don't want to. But I compromised because I didn't want to be kicked out and I felt like I have to just kind of compromise so they think I'm not like a crazy uh, uncompromisable person as a people pleaser in me. And we went through and found out baby was 3.9 kilos around about 39 weeks. So what I was expecting, because my first was 3.7 at 38. Um, and then it was, the same talk, you know, we're going to do induction and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, I knew my baby was going to be this big and I'm more than happy, but it's just the extra appointments. My husband had to come in extra appointments just to do this thing because you've got to tick a box and I'm going to say no anyway. So why are you making me do this? And, um, you know, you've got to go to see the anesthesiologist because you're bigger. So I had a conversation with them and they said, um, you know, they look at your back and they said, You've got a really good back. We're worried, like when we do, um, when we have to do emergency spinal or epidurals on bigger women, that it can be harder to put the needle in the back because there's fat that covers the back, the spine. But you've got no fat over your spine because my back actually, the fat goes around the spine. So, perfect primary candidate. Um, which is why with my spinal, with a surgery the first time, they had no problems. I've seen women who have had like six, seven, eight attempts to get a, a needle in their back. And I thought, well, it can't be that bad if they got it in the first time. Cause I'd, my girlfriend had had like eight in the back once. Um, so they said, yep, perfect back, blah, blah, blah. But we still recommend you have an epidural on arrival. And I was like, okay, why? That's just what we recommend. And so I was asking those questions. Why? Why do you recommend that? Why do you say that? So the whole pregnancy I was asking those questions, which meant that I could move forward more confidently because I knew it was a staffing issue. I knew this was just their recommendation for insurance. I understood those things, which gave me more confidence in my choices, um, and I knew that they weren't reckless or dangerous, you know. But I ended up going into spontaneous labour. I did have a stretch and sweep at 40 weeks because my midwife, my student midwife, um, because I changed hospitals, I didn't change, but I was forced to change, um, she wasn't going to get her book signed off anymore. So she actually um, booked a holiday on my due date so she'd been advocating with me the whole pregnancy and then when it wasn't in her favor and like I understand where she's coming from like I'm surprised she came with me but there was no deeper hurt at that point than uh for someone to book a holiday on your due date somebody who was advocating with you saying that everything they'd been saying was bs and the minute it wasn't in her favor she was then nudging me come on baby be June before the, be born before the due date because I'm going on holiday and I want to be there for the birth. And I was like, I just felt so battered on all fronts. Like it was just, it was a lot for me to, I felt so betrayed by her. Like I would rather have her said, I'm not going to come to the hospital. Um, and just, that was it, you know, rather than I've booked it on your, on your due date and, um, you know, make sure you give birth before then. So, She came into one of the appointments and the obstetrician offered a stretch and sweep and I was like, I don't really you know, want to do it. I turned to her and asked her what she thinks. Of course, she said, yeah, why not do it because it's in her best interest to do it. So it's really mindful to be very careful who you ask questions and you surround yourself with because they can influence your decision. And there was a part of me that wanted to do it a big part of me because I wanted to know what was happening last time my cervix couldn't even open. So this time I'm like, is it going to work? Am I going go to spontaneous labor? Can it even happen? And then the other half of me is like, no, it's not good. It's not helpful. <laughs> you know, it could, it could make your mindset really bad because what if she says the opposite, you know? So I had this stretch and sleep. So obviously I was already, she said like two to three centimeters or something open already. Um, so it was all looking favorable, you know, that doesn't mean anything. I could be three, four centimeters for weeks. I didn't know that at the time. I know that now I would never let anyone put their fingers in me now. (laughs) Um, but yes, it wasn't a bad experience. And I went into labor two days later, uh, maybe a day or two days later, spontaneous labor. If you call that spontaneous, many people call that a a type of induction, Um, but I'd also put myself on a timer because I was, um, 40 plus 10 days was the longest I would allow myself to go with having gestational diabetes. And that was pretty much their limit too. So they were happy for me to go to 40 plus 10, which they were a little, they were more accommodating at this hospital. They were more respectful. The language and the way they spoke to me was much nicer and I felt in better hands. So I went into labor and I knew the doctor who gave me the stretch and sweep was going to be on working that day. And as soon as I got into hospital and they wanted obstetricians to come in, I said, you know, is blah, blah, blah here, Dr. Blah, 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 because she's working today. And they came in and they said, well, she actually stopped working yesterday doing like actually working in a practical way. So now she only does appointments. And I was like, I know this one obstetrician who I really loved, who was almost a consultant, who was able to, who understood me, who I'd had at least a couple of appointments with, who was lovely. And she just stopped working the day before. <laughs> I was like, no. Um, so I banned all the obstetricians from my room for a few hours. I When I checked in, I was five centimetres. They were really surprised I was five centimeters. I think maybe because I was handling it pretty well. I was so proud of myself for going into spontaneous labor. I was in such a mind positive mindset space. I was every surge brings me close to my baby. I was like, oh, like this is amazing. My doula set up the room beautifully. We had a beautiful suite. I just spent all my time in the shower. Um, It was dark and I was just going through the motions and I just went straight into um, labor as soon as I went into labor. So I suppose I should say like it was like four o'clock in the morning when it all started, six o'clock in the morning. And when I go into labor, it just starts and that's it. There's no pre-labor. There's no other sort of stuff. And I I had the bloody show as well. And... So I had a couple of those things and I was always going to stay home. But when I went into labor, I started, I had a adrenaline shock. I started shaking and I was a bit scared. And, you know, the first thing I was like, I want to get to the hospital. (laughs) I'm going to have this baby so soon in my mind. I was like, I'm going to have this baby so soon. My mom had me in seven hours and I was the first. And she had my sister in two as the second. So I always had it in my head. I'm going to have a quick baby. And so I raced down there, didn't really understand I knew that I wasn't going to, I had my birth plan. I understood that I wasn't going to have certain interventions, but I didn't really understand the reasons why. I just knew that that's what they were saying in these VBAC groups. And so I didn't understand about birth. I didn't know much about birth. I hadn't done any research. Everything and all my time and energy was around induction. If I just don't, if I just have a spontaneous labor and I get to a midwife, everything's going to work out. That's what I thought. So I was with a midwife and I had a spontaneous labour and everything's going to work out. The baby just comes at your vagina when they when you don't have to go through these things. And um, basically, you know, I thought my waters had broken because I could feel um, the water stuff and it smelt like, you know, um, I knew there was some leaking. And I said, I think my waters have gone, the midwife said, um, you know, do you want me to check? And I said, yeah, okay. She checked and she said, yep, your waters have gone, but there's a little bag there. Do you want me to break that? And I said, okay, well, you know, if it's not a big deal. And she broke it and it was my entire waters. Um, It wasn't just a little bag. And the reason why they wanted to have access to that area is because I had, I had, um, I had said that I would get the screw on my baby's head. So they wanted to, you know, that was the first bit of intervention that they were allowed to do. So if I'd known, I didn't know that, but if I'd known that, you know, obviously there would have been, if I'd know, if you know certain things, you you would make different choices, but that's a choice that I made in that moment. And um, then I was, and the reason I chose that mode is because it meant that I could be wireless, it meant I could go back in the shower, but unfortunately she plugged me to a machine. (laughs) So that was weird that she actually plugged me to a machine with that. Um, and then as soon as I got off the bed, there was a D cell and then I had to get back on the bed. And after the waters were broken, it was an excruciating pain. And then the doctors rushed in because she didn't, um, she didn't recover quick enough. Um, so then they have to rush in and then she recovered. And then, then they recommended C-section and and it just started from that process on. I think at one point before that had happened, the junior doctor who I'd actually seen before, even though I told her my plan, I had a birth plan and I told her, she um, kept harassing me about putting a cannula in my arm. And I said, no, I don't want it. I'm in labor, by the way. No, I don't want it. She's like, oh, come on, you know, we'll just put it in. I'm like, no, it's really painful and I don't want it. Oh, come on. You know, it was like a little gnat on my shoulder buzzing around like a little toddler. And I was like, okay, fine, just put it in, just leave me alone, you know. And um she did that. That was the first intervention they did and then the water's breaking and then I couldn't get into my groove after that. I went back into the shower finally and sitting on the toilet alternating, but I just couldn't. I couldn't get back into it. The pain was excruciating by that point. And also I had a, a birthing pool in my suite, but they wouldn't let me in because apparently having a, uh, being in the bath is an intervention, but they want you having a an epidural, but they can't fill the bath up for you. Um, which is really interesting to me because they do have a hoist that hangs from the roof that can hold up to, I think it was about 200 kilos. So that was like, almost double what I needed. So the other thing about birthing pools is that they need um, women, they need midwives who are trained in birthing pools. So they need at least one or two midwives who are trained to allow women in a bath, which is interesting. (laughs) Then they have a weight limit that you have to be under a hundred kilos. So they've got all these little, Things that, you know, have to meet. You have to have the right midwives working. They have to consent. They have to be okay with you being in there. Then you have to be under a certain weight, which is ridiculous. But they're more than happy to jab you on the back with a a drug, a dangerous drug, (laughs) you know, at times. Um, So I was really upset about that, that they said, no, I can't have a bet because I always dreamed, which is why I chose that hospital because I wanted to have a water bet. Not so much birthing in the in the birth pool, but I just love being in the water. I'm a mermaid. Like I grew up with water. I grew up near the beach, um, and also it's like a really nice space to be in. And so that's why I was in the shower. I just love being in the water. But eventually, after I couldn't take it anymore, I just said, to, "This is about twelve o'clock, a little bit after twelve o'clock." So by this point, I'm already eight centimeters, and I said to my husband, I called him my husband because I knew he would just get it for me. And I said, um, I need the epidural. I want the epidural. And the epidural was there within five, 10 minutes because I was priority. And I knew that I knew as soon as I asked for it, it would be there. I had a girlfriend who said, as soon as you get the ask for the epidural, because it takes hours. So women who are lower risk, who want an epidural, they get taken, it takes them hours to get one and they're screaming in agony and they desperately want one. And then women who don't want that one, they will prioritize.
0: It's so weird. It's completely backwards.
1: It is. And and it's the same. Like when women want a cesarean here in Australia, if you go public, you can't have one unless you've had a cesarean before. If she wants a cesarean, give her a cesarean. Like don't force her to have a vaginal birth if she doesn't want to. The same as a woman who wants to have a V-back, let her have a V-back. Don't force her into another cesarean. It makes – you're traumatizing women on – taking away their power on both sides and it's horrible. Um, So that's a whole nother story to go into. (laughs) Um, Eventually I got the epidural and that was excruciating, waiting for it and having to sit over while you're contracting. That's a new experience, a horrible one. At that point I was regretting having it because, you know, who wants to be crouched over for five or ten minutes going through contractions? And when it was in, you know, it took all the pain away and then I was like, oh, okay, I can relax. I'm sitting on the chair, um, you know, in the bed and my everyone left the room. They must have been thinking, yes, finally, we got it. We got it. (laughs) Um, And my doula, you know, got some lunch. It was lunchtime. She got us some lunch and we all had lunch together and I was talking about how I don't trust them. I don't, you know, these people are maniacs. Like they just... They, at this point, they were saying to me, um, "Your this is what they said to me. You have a cervical lip on. You have a cervical lip. You're ten centimeters one side, eight centimeters the other side. The cervical lips eight centimeters. Your baby's anzylytic. Your baby's ROT. So they're they're showing me the diagram with their hands and they're looking at me and their eyes are like wide open. And I'm like, okay, so what's that mean? They're like, okay, so your baby's in a really bad position. It's really hard for your baby to get down with the waters broken and um, it's your baby's up really high. And I'm like, okay, so, what? you know, like is it going to take a lot longer? Like I can wait for the baby to be born. And they're like, well, you know, we recommend cesarean because if you don't have a cesarean now, your risk of – tearing in the cesarean is higher because the further the baby comes down, the more risk you are at tearing. And I'm like, okay, so can I just have my baby out my vagina? And they're like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, and I'm like, well, why can't I, why are we having this conversation? Why can't I just have my baby out my vagina? And they told me about a woman who'd been laboring for over 24 hours. I don't know the relevance of the story. I was like, they're like, well, she's still laboring at 24 hours. I'm like, okay what's like, why, why does this matter? Like I've got the epidural now. I'm not even in pain. Like, you know, I can have a nap and everything. What's the big deal? Like there's, there's no big deal. And I know I had this conversation with them where I negotiated to have a, um, have a check every couple of hours on my cervix, because I thought that was like normal. It's the normal procedures every four hours to do a VE. And here's me negotiating every couple of hours for them to do a VE. And that was me thinking I was compromising and all this sort of thing. And so they came in every couple of hours and they said the same thing over and over and over again. We recommend you have a cesarean because of this risk, blah, 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 blah. And I would just think these people are maniacs. I felt like I was in this room with people who were like the enemy and I couldn't trust them, but I was captive and I I couldn't go anywhere. And I felt really powerless. I didn't have any information to or knowledge to combat. I'm sure my doula was probably saying some things, but I didn't have the full knowledge that I have now, um, which would have been really helpful and useful, but I probably wouldn't have been in that situation if I had that knowledge. <laughs> so um, eventually we had a couple more um cells, they rush in, they rush out. And by the third or fourth one, I think it was only three in total, but I felt so much pressure that I just finally gave in. And this is only after 12 hours of labor. So they put so much pressure on me in such a short period of time that I crumbled to just saying, fine, okay, okay you know, and they didn't even give me any time to labour or do any of the things that, you know, it's ridiculous. Like it's, it's laughable and almost criminal looking back on it now. But I thought at the time that, you know, this was normal. I didn't even know I was in a pressure cooker. So I went in for the surgery and the thing that they said that could happen happened to me. So they tore my uterus. They said the baby's arm swung out. As she was getting pulled out, um, whatever happened, it happens. Their prediction, they knew the risk. They put me in the risk. It happens. Um, I lost three point one liters of blood. My husband and baby were rushed out of the room, and I was in there for like four hours. And I just remember laying on the bed, feeling like I just want to scratch out of my body because I felt so trapped. I just wanted to scratch out. I was so traumatized. I thought I was going to die. I was so scared. I was in there with like all these strangers and I was just so tired. I was so tired. I'm listening to like obstetricians, like another, another team had to get called in a more senior team, um, had to get called in. So then I'm listening to the, like them fight each other. Like you can tell it's like serious because of the way they're speaking. And there's like power struggles over, no, I think this should happen. One person wanted to put me down, put me to sleep. And I'm like, yes, please, please. And the other one is like, no, she can't because I was vomiting because I'd eaten food. I was vomiting. I had stuff in my stomach. And so that's why I had to be awake the whole time. And so it was just not a, it was the worst experience of my life. So I think I got out of there about 11, I was in recovery and then I think I got reunited with my husband and baby at 12 and she was born about 6.30. And then I was watched around the clock by a, late, a midwife. Um, she checked me every 15 minutes and then I, gra- I call it graduation. Then I graduated from that room and then I went to the normal maternity suite. So by the time I got to my room it was probably like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning so I'd be awake for that whole day and that was my second birth
0: wow ashley those are some births that you have been through my goodness (laughs) so what was the postpartum period like then for you ashley
1: I was told I can never labour again because I had a special scar and they told me after the surgery, promise me you'll never labour. And I was like, I promise, I promise. Of course, you know, I was so traumatised. I thought I was going to die. I was just thankful to be alive. And I was, I feel like I was so traumatised because of the, they took that away from me saying I could never labour again. But they said you can have two more babies on caesarean. Well, that's unusual because they normally only recommend like three in total, but I thought he must be pretty confident with what he's done then. Um, That gave me a bit of hope. And I was just trying to survive. I felt like I shouldn't have had this other baby. I was not coping. I was borderline PND. I probably had PND for me, but I was always doing the surveys and I just wanted to escape, like get out of this existence because I wasn't coping. I had a 24 month old, had a new baby, was having flashbacks of the surgery. Every time I would have any alone time because everything was around the babies, I was stuck with babies all day. I couldn't look after myself i would cry constantly i was just a wreck like an absolute wreck and when i went to the doctor and told her it was all it was always like well you know you've got a healthy baby things could have be been worse you, you know your baby could have died and i'm like why would my baby die why would my baby die like why and every time i you know i'm i'm actually like confiding in these people because i'm like suffocating, but they're not skilled or trained to be able to co- cope with people with mental health. Um, I wouldn't say I had a condition, but I was suffering. Like I had depression and you know, the only other people that could understand were other mums. So I was really lucky. I had a group of mums who were suffering too, and it it sucks for them, but we all suffered together. And, you know, it was all like, yeah, I want to pack my bags too. And this is, this sucks. You know, we were the only ones that understood. So we really supported each other. And, um, eventually I started to share my story on a blog. And it was to to warn other women about some of the experiences I'd had, the breastfeeding challenges, the, the in, misinformation I was told, my experience. I really wanted to save as many women as I could. And that turned into me um, training as a postpartum doula and learning all about postpartum because I knew birth was too raw for me. But... Through doing that, I was connecting with, you know, people who were training in postpartum, but they were birth doulas or birth educators or hypnobirthing teachers. And so I started to form a network and I started doing mastermind coaching in these capacities, learning and connecting with other people. And that really brought me out. I started reading birth books and I started to go to doula conferences and seeing experts. And I was like, they were blowing my mind by what they were saying. And, I wasn't in the birth realm, but I was absorbing all of that for myself, but not for the professional cap- capacity because I was, I didn't feel like it was um, fair for mums if I was um, working in that space when I was traumatized and I hadn't healed. And, but I was perfectly fine with working in postpartum because I had, uh, I was breastfeeding my baby. I, I made it to a year and I was learning. So I had, it was like the full spectrum of information. And I feel like my business and working in that capacity saved my soul because it gave me something to work on it. I was helping people. I was connecting with people who understood me, who I had all these tools and resources. I went to, I did three birth, um, Birth debrief sessions. I did birth healing. I had a sacred bones healing ceremony. I was just surrounded by so much love and so many educated people who were filling my cup and telling me all these things. And I couldn't absorb any more. I was like a sponge.
0: I am so glad that you got that healing experience that you really needed. And I am so excited. For you to come back and share your free birth, unassisted home birth story. It's going to be amazing. Can't wait. Be sure to tune in to episode eight for part two of Ashley's birth stories. That's our show. And I want to thank you for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, I'd be so grateful if you took a moment to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. If you're struggling with fears, doubts, what-ifs, or creeping anxieties, you're definitely going to want to grab my fear-releasing journal prompts. Just go to the show notes to get them. Thank you to everyone that helps make this show happen. The theme song was written and recorded by Jody Good. I'm your host and producer, Megan R. Cooper, Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay fearless.